Please turn with me to the book of Psalms this morning. In 1940, as the Nazi party was in control of Germany, well on its way seemingly to rule all of Europe, one small book was published that must have surely been seen as open rebellion against the reigning political party. It was a book that exalted the Jewish scriptures by calling for Christians to recover the Psalms as the prayer book of the Bible. The man that wrote that little book, which is actually still in print, and I would commend it to you, was named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And as you might imagine, he did not have many political friends in Germany. In fact, the initial publication of that book earned him an official fine from the government. And though that was later retracted, it was not much longer until Bonhoeffer himself was arrested and imprisoned. Just for one book? No, That book on the Psalms was the fruit of a lifetime lived in defiance of the godlessness that marked the Nazi party. As a pastor, seminary teacher, and theologian, Bonhoeffer opposed Hitler and established what was known as the Confessing Church. For the official Lutheran church in Germany had capitulated to the Nazis and had supported them. And Bonhoeffer said, any real Christian cannot do that. And so he began a new form of the Lutheran church that would not compromise its beliefs and practices to the Nazis. In his book, the the prayer book of the Bible, he says, Whenever the Psalter is abandoned, an incomparable treasure is lost to the Christian church. With its recovery will come unexpected power. It was, in fact, the Psalms that helped sustain Bonhoeffer's faith while he was in prison even while he stared down death and the gallows upon which he would soon die. The Psalms were his comfort. Why? Why were the Psalms so powerfully used? Why did he believe they were needed by the church? Because the Psalms kept pointing Bonhoeffer to God. They kept pointing him to God in ways that deepened his faith and solidified his confidence in his heavenly Father. Well, this morning we want to ask ourselves, is that how we read and understand the Psalms? Is that the kind of reaction that we have when we spend time with them? Would our experience with this part of God's Word be so impactful that we would be ready to publicly extol them in the midst of a political regime marked by murderous anti-Semitism? Assuming that Bonhoeffer is right in what he wrote, what makes the Psalms so special and important? This morning we are beginning a new series of sermons through the book of Psalms, and it's not on my part without a little fear and trembling. The Psalms is one of the most important and certainly one of the most dearly beloved books in the Bible. Consider that for Hundreds of years, if you went to purchase just a copy of the New Testament, almost always bound in the back was also the book of Psalms. Every once in a while, Proverbs would slip in there as well, but you always got the book of Psalms. You think about all the different books or parts of the Bible that might have been wedded to the New Testament, and it was always the Psalms. Probably because the book of Psalms is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. Uh, Psalm scholar James Johnson says that Jesus and the apostles consistently turned to the Psalms to preach the kingdom of God and establish key doctrines. And so it's not surprising that at certain times in church history, pastors were actually expected to memorize all 150 Psalms before began entering the ministry. 
Or perhaps you may know that the first book ever printed in the United States was in fact a collection of the Psalms. Not the entire Bible, but a collection of the Psalms. It holds an essential place in the Bible. But for many, I fear, the Psalms are kind of taken for granted. They're there. We read them. Most of us will have at least one of them read at our funeral about the Lord who is our shepherd. But beyond that, we're not exactly sure what to do with them. Why would we devote so much time and energy to studying these things? Beyond the fact that they're in the Bible and therefore worthy of our attention, why have the Psalms had such an impact both on the old covenant people of Israel and the new covenant people, the church? Well, several reasons that I want to highlight for you this morning. And you need to understand that the first half of our time together is really me priming the pump, doing everything I can to get you interested, excited, ready to live in this book for the next several weeks. So what do we see here? Why is the psalm so important? Why are they so impactful? First, it's because we see in them an unparalleled emotional intensity. An emotional intensity. Uh, Theologian John Calvin used to call the psalms the anatomy of all parts of the soul. That was his title for this book. What he meant is that it appears from his reading and the reading of many others as they have agreed with him throughout church history, there isn't any human emotion that we experience that is not recorded and dealt with in this book of Psalms. In this book, we see biblical expressions of those experiencing loneliness, love, sorrow, shame, regret, repentance, awe, anger, exaltation, fear, delight, depression, grief, joy, brokenheartedness, contrition, pain, hope, and more. Why is that helpful to us? It's helpful because most often we do not know how to respond to God when we experience those things. We do not know how to worship God. We do not know how to call out to Him in prayer. We lack the very vocabulary necessary to come before God in honest and biblical ways when we experience the full range of human emotion and experience. But by studying, by reading, by taking in the Psalms, it can become that language for us. It can become the way in which we are to call out to God. And in part, we understand this because though these are genuine expressions of real people in space-time history, this is also the very Word of God. This is Scripture. So the Psalms are not only rooted in the experience of real people as they praise and offer thanksgiving, confess sin, repent, experience joy and sorrow, but they are the God-ordained means by which our faith is built up. And we are able to live out a life of righteousness. So what we have here is not just example, but instruction from God on how to think and feel about Him and the life that He leads us in. The Psalms show us how to call out to God in both the pain and the pleasure of life. So so as we think about that, how can the psalmist, that's the word for those that write a psalm, how can they know how to navigate such highs and lows in life? Because they know who God is. And so what we see here is that the Psalms don't merely show us prayers and praises of God's people, but the God they worship. And so that is why we also see in the Psalms a doctrinal complexity. A doctrinal complexity. See, most books of the Bible have one central theme or perhaps a small cluster of themes that hold that book together. It was written for this purpose, to convey this message. That's not the Psalms. 
the, the Psalms have the full range of biblical doctrine running through them, specifically the doctrine of God. So in the Psalms, God is shown to be a shield, a rock, a shepherd, a judge, a refuge, a fortress, and an avenger. The creator, deliverer, healer, protector, provider, redeemer, above all the king who reigns not just over his people, but the entire world. And as such, he is to be worshipped and trusted and obeyed because he is good. He is upright. He is righteous. He is just and gracious. He is faithful, loving, compassionate, and forgiving. In other words, in the Psalms, we see the character and the care of the almighty sovereign God brought to bear in the lives of his people. Jeffrey Grogan, another scholar on the Psalms, shows how this is played out in nine broad themes throughout this book. We see the God who not only creates His people, but the God who rules, speaks to, meets with, protects, judges, blesses, and refines His people. He's the God who distinguishes His people from the nations and fulfills His purposes in them. It's not surprising when we stand back and consider all that, that Martin Luther called the Psalms a Bible in miniature. He says in these 150 Psalms you have a small Bible where all the themes and theology of the rest of Scripture can be found. Some have even said that if you had no other part of the Bible, you would have there the essential beliefs of Israel and Christianity before you. Amazingly, the original Hebrew title of this book is Praises. And as we've seen, it's not all just happy time. It's not just all words of confidence and praise in God. And yet... What that original compiler, the one who put this book together and titled it Praises, wants us to see that in all circumstances of life, in the best of times and the worst of times, God is worthy to be praised. What exactly are the Psalms, though? Just by a quick scan through the book, you will see that visually they are very different from the rest of Scripture. You, you, you flip either forward to some narrative or whatever else, and what you'll find is just block text, like you read a normal book. But here you've got all this indentation, all this crazy formatting. What are we looking at here? Well, in the Psalms, we see poetic artistry. We see poetic artistry because they are, by definition, poems. Some are songs meant to be sung by individuals or the gathered people of God, but most are prayers offered by individuals or offered by the collective people of God. As poetic works of the Hebrew language, there's a lot of skill and artistry that goes into their composition. It's not just random thoughts thrown down at paper, okay? Uh, it's not free-form poetry as we know it today. But the Hebrews also didn't write poetry the way that we do, right? Roses are red and violets are blue, sugar is sweet, so so are you, right? I mean, that's typically how we think of poems, okay? Thankfully, they didn't write it that way because can you imagine translating that phrase, that line of poetry into multiple languages? I mean, think about a literal translation of roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, and so are you. You would have culture saying, so you want us to eat you? Well, thankfully, that's not how the Hebrew mind worked in God's providence, and so they don't rely on things like rhyme, and instead, what they do is rely on things like rhythm and repetition and extensive use of metaphor and vivid imagery so that these psalms have a kind of timeless, transcultural quality about them. 
the psalmist's favorite device, though, is parallelism. And this is where you have similar ideas repeated, sometimes in very similar wording, in order to emphasize something. Sometimes it's a simple repeat. Sometimes it's a repeat with intensified language. And sometimes it's an inversion. You're saying the same thing, but in opposite form, which we'll actually see this morning as we look to Psalm 1. The individual psalms are unique, being written by various authors on specific occasions, and as such, the psalms basically fall into different types of categories. There's different types of psalms. Scholars disagree on the various categories, but basically there is agreement that here we see hymns of praise as well as psalms of lament, trust, thanksgiving, and wisdom. We also see royal or messianic psalms that talk about the king over Israel, the ultimate king to be found in Christ. But the entire Psalter shows an intentional design as well. And that's the, that's the word that is used to describe the entire collection of the book of Psalms, the Psalter. You know, when I was in college, the kind of prevailing thought that I used to hear anyway was that there really wasn't a lot of intentionality or rhyme and reason in the collection of the Psalms. They kind of grabbed from this collection here and this collection here and this collection here, and they kind of just loosely grouped them together and boom, you had the Psalms. But it's more prevalent today and I think more right to see a book that is actually a carefully crafted collection. These psalms were penned throughout Israel's history, but the final product has been brought together by someone who has come through the exile of Israel to the nations and is now back in the promised land, wanting to bring together this book to be the prayer book, the song book of God's people to encourage them, to build them up, and to point them back to God in whom they can have confidence and trust. So well, how do, you, how do you know that? Well, because you have places like in Psalm 137 where they say that by the waters of Babylon we sat. Well, Israel was not anywhere in Babylon until the exile. So you know that the person who pulled all these things together had been through this experience. And so what you have is them taking these smaller collections. You see at the beginning, all of these psalms penned by David. And then he's putting them strategically in places, gathering together other psalms to give us this Psalter. That's why if you look down at your text, you'll notice that right above Psalm 1, it says, Book 1. There's actually five books that make up the Psalter and all have a specific feel in terms of content and themes. Taken together as a whole work, they tell the broad story of Israel from the rise of David as king to the Lord himself who stands as the ultimate king above all things. We see the struggle of conflict between David and his enemies and ultimately the pain of the exile among the people of God. These things move godly men and women to long for the fulfillment of God's promises through David's line to bring about the Christ. And this leads us to see the final reason why the Psalms are so helpful and important. Here we see a book with clear gospel centrality. Gospel centrality. Those of you that are members and have been here regularly over the last few weeks, I hope you remember what Jesus told his disciples both on the road to Emmaus and when he met with the 12 before his ascension, because we just looked at it a few weeks ago. But let me read it for you just in case you've forgotten. Jesus said, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. So what does Jesus say? You read the Psalms, you learn about the gospel. 
So it is wrong to read the Psalms and not seek to understand something of the personal work of Christ. Now, that does not mean that every single line, every single Psalm is going to point forward to Jesus and tell us about him in the same way. It's not just all prophecy pointing to him. Um, no, what we see are these Psalms playing a part in the larger history of God's working to bring about the redemption and restoration of sinners through Christ. On a more fundamental level, we see Christ fulfilling the Psalms because remember, these are the cries of God's people, both in sorrow and in joy. And as our substitute, as the perfect embodiment of a man of God, Jesus fully and finally and perfectly and ultimately takes up these psalms as his own cries to God. Do we feel forsaken? Do we read of the psalmist who feels forsaken? Jesus was more forsaken than anyone else. Do we praise God? Do we feel moved and see the psalmist wanting to give God glory, Jesus praised God more fully and completely and deeply than any other. Why? Because as the perfect man who endured every temptation and was yet without sin, he was also the eternal son of God who knows and trusts and is more intimate with God the Father than anyone else. So in a, in a, in a large foundational sense, Christ fulfills the Psalms Every psalm is declaring praise or asking a question that Christ provides the ultimate answer to. Now, hopefully, hopefully I've, I've begun to whet your appetite, but if you're still not convinced, if you're still not convinced, here's, here's the bonus round. Three short bullets of why you should devote yourself to the psalms. First, this is Scripture. It is the word of God, therefore it is helpful for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Second, Christians are commanded to speak the Psalms to one another in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5. Finally, consider that when Jesus hung on the cross under the wrath of God for his people, the book that he drew strength from and used its language to call out to God from was the book of Psalms. If psalms were the prayer book of jesus how much more should they be the prayer book of jesus people the psalter opens with a introduction in two forms psalms one and psalm uh, psalm one and psalm two act as two great doors of a gate that that stand at the front of the psalter that we must go through before we enter into the riches of this work. Through these two psalms, we learn why and how we ought to read them. And so today we begin our journey with Psalm 1. Please follow along as I read God's word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. May God bless the reading of his word. 
here we first see the way of the righteous laid out for us at the beginning of the book of Psalms, the way of the righteous. First of all, we see that this way of the righteous is said to be blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? Well, you can hear all kinds of crazy things on television by preachers telling you what it means to be blessed by God. Most often it involves some kind of favor from Him by which you receive material things. But that is not what the psalmist is talking about here. Here, to be blessed means to have a happiness. Some of your translations may actually say, happy is the man in verse 1. There is a happiness that flows out of a sense of well-being and rightness in all parts of life. It is one who has found rest for his soul, which brings joy and contentment before God. It doesn't mean a life that is always easy or free from pain, but it does mean that even in the worst of circumstances, they know God and therefore have joy in Him. That is the blessedness that marks the way of the righteous person. So what does that kind of life look like? How do we achieve it? First, we see that the way of the righteous is marked by wise discernment. Wise discernment. In the description of the righteous person, we're actually told what he is not like first. What he is not like. Blessed is the man who walks not who doesn't do this, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the seat of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now, what do these things mean? Let's unpack these descriptions. First of all, to walk in the counsel of the wicked is to listen to their advice or instruction. You're willing to take upon yourself their way of thinking, a way of thinking that characterizes the wicked. And if you continue to do that long enough, you end up standing in the way of sinners. Now, for us, we think of standing in the way as if you're blocking someone. But here, it's more like standing or walking in their shoes. It's the idea of you're putting yourself in their place. You've gone from just thinking now to living a lifestyle that is marked by sinfulness. Finally, there is the seat of scoffers. In Scripture, the scoffer is one who not only lives the life of a sinner but scoffs at, mocks, makes fun of those who live righteously. The scoffer is one who has no regard for God, and they make jest at anyone who does. To sit with them is to join with them. What does the psalmist say? The righteous person isn't like that at all. Their thinking and living is not defined by the wicked, sinful, scoffing ways of this world. They know better. They are wise and they are able to discern right from wrong and know to flee such things. Instead, the righteous person is shaped by a Godward delight. By a Godward delight. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The law of the Lord can sometimes mean actual law, specific commands given to Israel. Other times it can mean the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, also known as the Pentateuch or the law. But it can also just mean any instruction or teaching that is given by God. In other words, all of Scripture. If it's Scripture, then it can be instruction 
from God. And I think that that's what the psalmist would have us to understand here. So what does the righteous person, the one whose way is blessed, what does he do with the law, with the instruction, with the word of God? He meditates on it day and night. That means if you've ever been out in in the field and you've seen cows chewing their cud, right? Just over and over and over again. When I was probably about six, I was uh, at a daycare and I asked the teacher, so is that where we get the idea for chewing gum? And she was like, no, I hope not. Um, but, but if you can imagine that kind of chewing and chewing and chewing and chewing and chewing and chewing, but not in your mouth, but in your mind, contemplating, thinking about rolling over, what does this mean? How ought to I to understand that? What does that have by way of implication for my life? That is what it means to meditate on the word of God. And what we see from scripture is if we begin to do that, to meditate on it day and night, to always have it in our minds that it will begin to transform the way we see the world and we live in it. Furthermore, notice that he delights in the word. The one who is blessed, the one who knows and enjoys the richness and fullness of a true spiritual life with God is the one who delights in the law of God. The godly person, the righteous person lives their life from the outset by God's word. And that is not drudgery. It is not, oh, I got I got so much to do, but you know, I got, I got to get these Bible reading in. Otherwise, people, someone's going to ask me about it. I'm going to say, no, I didn't do it. And I'm going to feel bad. I'm going to have to make it up. And I'm going to miss my favorite TV show. Oh, I hate doing this. That's not the way of the righteous. The way of the righteous is one who delights in the law of the Lord. It is their joy. It is their greatest privilege to have the living word of the Almighty and to be able to meditate it on, meditate on it day and night. Third, the righteous person is marked by fruitful distinctiveness. Fruitful distinctiveness. Psalmist gives us a picture of what this looks like, and, and, and a visual image. And here, note the distinctiveness of the righteous person. First, he's like a tree planted by streams of water. Okay? So planted, if you're planting something, what are you doing? You are intentional with it. You're providing stability to it. It didn't just kind of grow up by itself and, and, and maybe it's hanging off the side of a cliff or, or whatever it is. No, there is stability and intentionality as God has set the individual in their place. And where has he set them? By streams of water that yield its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Remember that in this kind of Middle Eastern part of the world, there are certain times of the year when the ground is more wet than others. Uh, the, the, the rains come and then the vegetation pops up, right? Even today, you go to that part of the world, you go to Africa, even to the American Southwest, sometimes there's desert and there's nothing there. Other times, a little bit of rain comes and suddenly, boom, all these flowers, all of these plants, all these shrubs turn green and bud and flower. You think, where were these things? That was very common back then and even today. And notice what the psalmist is saying. That's not the righteous person. They are planted not just in some wadi that may or may not have water and and therefore cause vegetation to grow at some points in the year. They are by a stream of water. It is constant. It is always there, which means the tree never looks dead, never looks leafless or lifeless. It is always green. It is always alive. It is always healthy. Therefore, it is always spiritually vital. It has spiritual vitality. That's what the psalmist wants us to see. But more than that, third, the righteous are marked by prosperity. In all that he does, 
he prospers. Do you remember what God told Joshua as Moses, the great leader of God's people, was left behind as Israel begins to go into, after, after 40 years, the long-promised land of Canaan, and Joshua is put in charge? Remember what God says? He says, I'm going to be with you just like I was with Moses. And he goes on to say this in Joshua 1.8, this book of the law, that is, at this point then, the five books of the Bible, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Sound familiar? There's a reason why God established in the law that when they had a king, the first thing they would do would be to pull out those scrolls of the first five books of the Bible and pull out a set of blank scrolls and begin copying. This is what determines our spiritual success. This determines whether or not we accomplish God's will, endure strife, and bear fruit, whether or not His Word is our delight and our daily meditation. And don't miss this. Psalm 1 is pointing you and telling you this to everything that's going to come after. So the entire Psalter, psalmist is saying, this is God's law, this is His Word. Take this up into your life. Think about it, meditate on it, and allow it to transform you. This is the very word of God. Before you enter in, do you understand how you must respond? Before you enter into these gates and endure, enjoy this paradise of doctrine and doxology, do you understand how you ought to respond, how you must listen and change? And allow God to do that work within you. You say, why is the Bible so important? Why is Scripture so key? Because it is truth, and we live in a world governed by falsity. That's the most basic level. Think about Romans 1 and how it describes the fall of humanity into sin. It's all about deception. Even now, we are deceived by that same wicked serpent. We are deceived by pride, by foolishness, by our own sinful hearts. And so now we live day in and day out in a world that turns the truth of God upside down. What he says is right, they say is wrong. What he says is wrong, they say is right. And we are bombarded by that mindset over and over and over again. And there is pressure for us to be twisted into the image of the world rather than the image of God. The only antidote to such wicked rebellion is the steady, regular prescription of God's word. You take your medicine and the sickness of sin will be held back in distorting the way you view the world and live in it. So if we desire to have the kind of stability of the blessed man or woman the deep roots that sustain continually, then we have to plant ourselves by the life-giving stream of God's word. Now that's the way of the righteous. What about the way of the wicked? We're also told about this individual here, the way of the wicked. What characterizes the wicked? What are they like? What is their life like? Verse 3, the righteous is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Verse 4 begins with this strong negation. The wicked are not so. And that relates not just to verse 3 that I read, but to verses 1, 2, and 3. Everything that has come before that marks out the way of the righteous is inverted in the way of the wicked. They don't do any of it. So everything that, is, that marks the path of righteousness is annulled 
by this word, this phrase, not so. Are the righteous deaf to the counsel of wicked people? Not so with the wicked. Do the righteous avoid staying in the way of sinners? Not so the wicked. Are the righteous those who refuse to sit in the seat of scoffers? Not so the wicked. Most importantly, are the righteous those who delight in meditating on the law of the Lord day and night? Not so with the wicked. Thus they are characterized by a hollow life. A hollow life. Look what happens to them. The wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. Think about the contrast that is to what we saw before, the stable tree producing fruit. In the psalmist, they would take the heads of grain of wheat, they would pick them up with a winnowing shovel. And the seed was what was thrown up into the air with the shovel and then bashed. So that the chaff, the useless part, would break off and be, blow away by, be blown away by the wind and the good uh, grain would fall that they would go away and grind up into flour and make bread with it. So, so what, what is chaff? It is worthless. It is rootless. It is useless and lifeless. And the psalmist says, so too the wicked. When God is ignored, The soul shrivels and eventually dies. It's a terrible picture that results in their hopeless future. Their hopeless future. The psalmist says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. That therefore makes us a foregone conclusion. There is no possibility of something else happening. The wicked will not stand in the judgment on the final day. They have no place among God's people. Some of you may know the name Horace Greeley. He's been most popularized by his statement that if he did not himself coin, he certainly made popular, go west, young man, go west. Meaning let, let, let us go from the east to the west in the, in the great move to fulfill manifest destiny and make this great nation one from sea to shining sea. But historians know much more about Mr. Greeley. Working as the editor of the New York Tribune for 30 years, he believed in the essential goodness of man, not his sinfulness, which the Bible teaches. And from that false belief, he backed over 40 experimental communes designed to shape a better society for America. He anticipated the sexual revolution of the 60s by advocating free love, so-called, and always seemed to be promoting a new cause that might bring about a utopia. But again and again and again, every scheme, every idea, everything he backed failed miserably. He even tried running for president in 1872 and once again failed Afterwards, he had time to kind of catch his breath from all that he had been doing for the previous decades. He took stock of his life, and here was the conclusion he reached. It's all been a waste. Here's what he said. I stand naked before my God, the most utterly, hopelessly wretched and undone of all who ever lived. I have done more harm and wrong than any man who ever saw the light of day. And yet I take God to witness that I never intended to injure or harm anyone. But that is no excuse. The wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Such is the hollow, hopeless life of those who neglect God and His Word. Even when they intend to do good and no harm. If you are living contrary to God. And the way of righteousness that will cause you to be blessed and experience joy. You are wicked and will not stand in the judgment. So what do we do? What do we choose? The only wise thing, we must choose the way to live. 
the way of righteousness, the way that brings life. Notice again what the text says in verse 6. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked perish. Does that mean God is ignorant of the, of the wicked? He doesn't understand who they are or what's going on? No, not at all. But in saying that the psalm, in saying that God knows the way of the righteous, the psalmist is saying that God knows it and that he owns it. He, he claims it, he watches over it and protects it because he himself has established it. But that's not true with the way of the wicked. That way will one day be perished. It will one day just be destroyed. D.A. Carson says 50 billion years from now into eternity, no one will be studying the ways of Adolf Hitler or Pol Pot. But every glass of cold water given in the name of the Lord Jesus will still be celebrated. The way of the righteous will last because it's known by the Lord, but not the way of the wicked. The wicked way that the righteous avoids, the lifestyle of thinking and false wisdom that is birthed by sin will one day be gone, blown away like so much worthless chaff never to be remembered again. Like your footprints on the seashore as the tide rolls in, so the way of the wicked will vanish. But the way of the righteous never ends, for God himself preserves it. So before we enter this book of doctrine and doxology, of theology and worship, we have a choice to make, and it's a serious choice. The first word in the psalm is blessed. The last word is perish. Those are the only two options. The way of life, the way of death, two ways to live, a way of wisdom, a way of foolishness, a way of righteousness, or a way of wickedness. Which way will we choose? Will we enter into the gates of this book prepared to listen to what God says? Now, the book of Psalms begins with this sharp contrast. But let's be honest. For, for those of you that have been Christians for years, let's be honest. Our life does not easily fit in either category. Even when we start off the day on the path of righteousness, how often do we find ourselves stopping to listen to the counsel of the wicked, beginning to think and act like sinners? As we read this psalm, we have to take its message seriously, but we also have to remember how it is that we can be on the way of the righteous. Even in the book of Psalms, this is a problem. That the Psalms does not just make everything black and white. They are tons of shades of gray in the middle because that's how we live our lives. Psalm 30 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. To, to have all of your sins forgiven, that is to be truly blessed. But then Psalm 130 says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, if you should actually keep count of iniquities, who could stand? Only with you is there forgiveness that you may be feared. In the fullness of time, though, Psalms itself, as we'll see next week, is pointing us forward already. In the fullness of time, what we see is that there was only one man who ever truly walked the way of the righteous. There was only one man who ever lived perfectly the, the vision of this psalm, and that was the man Christ Jesus. He lived the righteous life that he did so that he could offer himself as, a, as a, an obedient sacrifice before God. The judgment that will one day fall on the wicked fell on God's people through Christ. He died in our place so that God's people might be forgiven and might walk that path of the righteous no matter how imperfectly. So this morning, again, you have to ask yourself, 
Are you walking on the way, not just of the righteous, but of the righteous one? Or are you walking antithetical to him, the way of the wicked? The way of righteousness begins and is daily lived by treasuring Christ to be our Savior and our King. We end our rebellion and submit to his reign by listening to and obeying his word. And this is no mere duty. It is delight because we know by walking in that word, we will be blessed. Father, I pray this morning with gratefulness for this book. Father, I fully expect in the coming weeks and months as we walk through it that my own heart will be laid bare before you, as will all those who are with us. Father, our sin will be exposed, but oh, how your mercy will be magnified. Father, you call us quite clearly, quite sternly, quite uncompromisingly to walk in the way of the righteous. But Father, where will we find forgiveness when we fail? Only with you. And the righteous one that you sent to be our Savior Christ. So Father, I pray that this morning that our journey through the Psalms begins with him, faith in him, that by that faith we might hear clearly all that you have spoken through your word, that we might be corrected, condemned by our, by our sin, but also built up and strengthened and encouraged by your grace. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.